Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. It's just gone 9.02, you're on 102.73 Triple R. The show is Radio Marinara, the show about all things wet and salty. My name's Dr Beach. And I'm Farm. Hi, everyone. And on Skypland, we have... Kate Mills out here. How you going, Kate? Nice to see your lovely face there on the screen. Oh, look, I'm doing very well. It's a gorgeous day out there. There's very little wind and it's a super low tide, but I've cut into FOM's weather section already. <laughs> That's quite okay. I always like hearing about the tides on Phillip Island. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what have we got on today, Dr Well, we've got a few things, but before we get to that, we've got to thank Tim. Always a lovely way to wake up on a Sunday morning to the dulcet tones of of Tim Thorpe and the beautiful music that he plays for us and for those of you who are missing the familiar beautiful voice of um, Bron Burton. She's away for a couple of weeks. So me at the helm, being helped by various people. And um, yeah, what have we got on the show today? Well, Farm, you're kicking off. Well, uh, we're starting with some weather for Sunday the 19th of June. Um, We've got a top of 16 degrees, partly cloudy today. It's very foggy. It's frosty in the east, which I have noticed while I was riding my bike here without my gloves on. Uh, Light winds becoming north to northeasterly, 15 to 25 k's an hour in the morning. And tides, Port Phillip Heads, low tide was at 8.52 a.m. today, so just passed. And next high will be at 4.05 p.m. Uh, in Morris, the next low will be at 12.27 p.m. and next high at 7.12 p.m. So that's the news and um, uh, that's the weather. And today we've got a little <laughs> bit of news. God, I still have to wake up this morning. Uh, we've got a bit, a little bit of news. Um, I think Kay's going to uh, update us on a little bit of VMPA news as well. Before we do that, let's just wind back and talk about what we're going to do on the show today. Mm-hmm. So you're going to kick off with a bit of a plastic, your Yes. Plastic fantastic segment. So and we'll talk a little week, bit about that. Yes, and uh, and then at the in segment one. Segment one. Yeah, bit of plastic from you. Um, so yeah, we're talking about the Environmental Protection Act because the uh, Environmental Justice Australia is working with the Eco Centre to have a look at how community groups can um, interpret the new general environmental duty to protect their waterways better. Good. Be good to um, discuss that, flesh it out a little bit, pull mm-hmm. it apart a little bit, tease it out. Any more cliches we can use? I don't know. <laughs> and then, Kate, you're joining us on Skype with um, Travis Dutka on Skype also. Yeah, so Travis is a senior lecturer at La Trobe University, and he's actually a physiologist, but he has a passion and love for all things wet and salty, which is why we're getting him on the show, because he was part of a group that sort of helped document, not necessarily discover, but a bryozoan reef in Western Port. A what reef? Yeah, so what we will do is actually <laughs> let people know what a bryozoan is when we get Travis on to begin with. and a then bryozoan. Discuss. It's a good word. Yeah. I love it. Sure is. And then we can actually discuss how significant these are. They're basically like globally significant, these things that we have been sitting in our backyard at Western Port and overlooked for many, many years. Uh, yeah, we will be talking about bryozoans. And just that they're, they're kind of like corals. I think of them a little bit like corals, but they don't form the huge reefs that we know of like corals. Anyway, they're invertebrates that make colonies. And yeah, I remember, I love studying those as an undergraduate. Really beautiful things. And then afterwards, um, well, afterwards for the last segment, if we have any time left, I'm going to talk a little bit about polar bears. There's been the 20th subpopulation of polar bears discovered 
in the southeastern corner of Greenland. A paper came out in Science this week. Um, were 19 populations before. This population is is quite different. Gene- the most genetically distant to any of the other polar bear populations. And the difference with these guys is that they can get by um, on slushy ice, so not the not the sea ice that all the other ones are dependent on. We're worried about ice decreasing as the Arctic warms. Therefore, the you know the habitat of polar bears. Now there's been a population discovered in the southeast corner which deals with, well, they get by in life without having to use big sheets of sea ice. God, so it's nice really, to hear a little bit of good news about polar bears for a change. Is, it is a little bit of good news about polar <laughs> bears fun. So we'll be talking about that for a few minutes at the end of the show. So back to news. There was a little bit of news from um, from you, Fum. Yeah. So uh, people who follow the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria posts on Facebook uh, may have seen that there was an elephant seal female that visited um, some rocks between Lawn and Apollo Bay. There's some really nice photos on their Facebook page. Um, and what's, what struck the photographer immediately was that she has branded numbers all down her side. So a U7 and a number 97 as well. And And that sparked a few questions from the person who was asking about it. Um, And thankfully, the the Marine Mammal Foundation was onto this immediately and uh, had a really uh, interesting explanation. And it turns out that the markings on the side of this elephant seal are from a previous practice of hot iron branding of individual elephant seals in the Antarctic and sub-Antarctic. And that was done, uh, it started in 1993 um, and was approved by the Antarctic Animal Ethics Committee. And it was for research because um, they they didn't really know uh, the survival rate of elephant seals. So they were studying yeah. that at the time because there were significant declines of the species in the mid-60s. And so uh, they branded uh, pups from 1993 to 1999 to, do, you know, to be able to track them more easily. Yeah. Um, now, that... That was thankfully uh, not continued. They're doing it differently now. I'm not entirely sure how, but what we did find yeah, out now hot, is that hot iron branding doesn't sound pleasant. No, not really. And I think they did it because um, apparently, you know, the the tagging technology that they had back then would have mm. actually been more invasive and more uh, detrimental to the potential fitness and survival of the of the pups later on. So at that stage, branding was a, a better uh, a better option. But it is pretty cool because we know now that this elephant seal female is 25 years old. Yeah, I was she's got say that. Yeah, yeah. 1997 <laughs> branded on her, uh, and it's it's really amazing because uh, before I believe that the oldest elephant seal recorded or seen was 24. So here we go. Okay, citizen a little, little bit of data, a little bit of citizen science. And where was this elephant seal spotted again? Uh, she was having a rest on the rocks between Lawn and Apollo Bay last week. Right. Yeah. So if you see elephant seals, people, please stay away. They are wild animals and they can be quite dangerous. So keep your dogs and everybody away. And uh, yeah, log your sighting with the Marine Mammal Foundation because they they have an app called Track MM and you can log all of your marine mammals there that you see around the place. Important information, fun. Thanks, Kate. You had a little bit of news. Oh, yeah, just quickly following up on the citizen science thing is um, just well, recently um, all around Victoria, people are starting to spot giant kelp. Now, we've heard about giant kelp declines, particularly in Tasmania. Um, you know, basically 95% of the giant kelp's been lost. But what a lot of people, I guess, aren't aware of is that there was once a lot of it around Victoria as well. So it's been in decline for quite some time. An enormous yeah. amount around Victoria. I remember back in the eighties when I was doing a lot of diving around Victoria, there was um yeah, you had to you had to dodge it. 
Well, apparently you used to have to carry a knife to cut yourself out. That's right. Yeah, you did. Tangled up. There was so much of it. And so that, which was interesting. And a lot of the, I guess the older, I shouldn't say older divers, should I? Yeah, like me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, the old Um, ones. I don't know. basically started seeing it in other areas. So Port Campbell's been one spot and around that sort of Great Ocean Road area, but also over at Phillip Island and Cape Shanks, small patches of it are starting to regrow. So citizen scientists under a project called Mission Macrocystis are starting to document these sightings now just so we can kind of get them an idea of where it's coming back, perhaps look at why it's coming back. And then, you know, similar to what's happening in Tasmania, explore some options for restoring it in some of these areas. I like it. Mission Macrocystis. Using yes. the, um, the Latin name for the giant kelp. One of the, um, yeah, we've got several different kelps, haven't we? But yeah, that's the one that we're worried about. I just got a message from uh, our uh, wonderful uh, Cliff Davis, who uh, just just t- texted us over... Um, Cliff? Yes, he's back. <laughs> and he just did a very quick Google and he said, oh, one of my friends was actually involved in tagging these seals. <laughs> <laughs> of course, obviously. Uh, who is now working with UN and IMOS. And he just did a quick Google and he says that particular elephant seal was born in, oh, she said nineteen ninety nine, but I think that must have been the branding. So she was branded as a weaned pup and um, the age at first breeding, she was five years old when she had her first pup. And since then, she's had four pups in her life. <laughs> Wonderful. And she was born on Macquarie Island. How cool is that? That's so cool, Cliff. Thank Thanks, you very Cliff. much. Yeah, our regular listeners may remember Cliff Davis, who was our Antarctic, well, still is our Antarctic correspondent. He's back in... Um, Back on the mainland at the moment, back in Australia, I gather. Um, and that's right, isn't it, Farm? Yeah, yeah correct, yeah, yeah. correct. And, um, yeah, we'd like to get Cliff back on the show. We now have Farm Shako doing her segment on um, plastics. Oh, yes. Well, Plastic Free July is rapidly approaching. And um, I'll plug the Werribee River Association first because they're kicking off Plastic Free July next week with a fabulous event. Um, so on Saturday, the 2nd of July at 6.30 p.m., they'll be at Woodingville Wunguruville Durung Community Centre in Wyndham Vale. And there will be a talk from the Werribee Riverkeeper, John Forrester, about the impact of plastic on our waterways and also some of the solutions at hand. Uh, and there will be a fabulous musical performance from the Orb Weavers. I know, very exciting, the Orb Weavers. I'd like to get down there for that. And that's going to be, not next week, that's going to be on July the 2nd. But July next, the 2nd. next week we're getting them into into the studio to talk a little bit a bit more about that um, that potluck. Oh, wonderful. Well, be, be sure to tune in. They make such amazing music. I love them. Um, and so, good segue into um, the next segment. So, look, usually when I read a piece of legislation, I fall asleep after about 20 seconds. I find it really hard to read. Um, but at the moment, some really exciting stuff's going on. Uh, the Environment Protection Act 2017 and its subordinate legislation came into effect on the 1st of July 2021 and it's been transformed. Um, and it's actually, the EPA calls it the biggest transformation of the environmental protection laws in 20 years, or in two generations actually. Um, and what has happened is that they have changed Victoria's focus for the environment protection laws into um, human health on a, it's, it's like a prevention-based approach that they've taken. And the centerpiece of these new laws is the General Environmental Duty, or the GED. And that now requires all Victorians to take reasonable and practical steps to reduce the human and environmental health risks of their activities. And so, previously, it was like you got punished if you got caught. That's right. So you could only, basically, you would be held accountable after the fact. So you would pollute first 
And then if yep. you were unlucky, you would get caught. If you're lucky, you don't even get caught. And then you would be fined, right? So in that sense, be, oh, yeah, I can imagine there'd be some people say, oh, I might as well try it on, see how it goes. Yeah, exactly. Because people would get away with a lot more than they would now, right? So what, what happens now is that the EPA is now empowered to work with businesses and organizations and even individuals to prevent harm rather than being solely reliant upon remedial measures um, after the damage has already occurred. And so to meet this new environmental duty, organizations and businesses will need to be really proactive in identifying and implementing risk assessments for the potential pollution that could potentially happen. Yeah, okay. So, and I had this discussion with someone recently about that, and it's very much in the model of like work safe and that whole idea yeah. of doing what you can to protect your protect your people, but instead of people, the environment is taking that place. Yeah, that's correct. And so I think they even modelled it on the OHS laws that we have in Australia. And so work safe was a, was kind of a model for this as well. Um, and it's really interesting that it works exactly the same way and it applies to everybody, right? So it's not just a, a business or a factory or an organization, but it's also for people. So anyone who is engaging in an activity that may give rise to the risk of harm to human health or the environment uh, for pollution. And so they must minimize those risks. And then, you know, that's obviously the caveat that says so far as reasonably practical. Yeah, well, I can imagine there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of flexibility in that, which would be... Um yeah, something which could be contentious and argued at court a lot. Yeah, well, that's that's the interesting part because the, these laws have been in effect for about a year now. So they came into effect last July. Um, but we haven't really worked out yet how it will stand up in the courts. So there hasn't been a test case? No, not yet. Not yet. So uh, EPA has been working with, um, you know, obviously working with this and implementing mm -hmm. it as much as possible. But no one's ever, no one has taken polluters to court just yet. Uh, and that's actually what the Ecocentre and Environmental Justice Australia are looking at at the moment um, just to kind of explore like what would it look like if for example a community group who looks after a particular waterway mm -hmm. wants to apply the general environment duty to protect their waterway what would that look like the Werribee River Association, for example. For example. <laughs> and, and this is an interesting part, right? Because microplastics have always kind of fallen under the radar, you know, flown under the radar, because they're so tiny and uh, there's, there's not usually enough being spilled by one factory for EPA to come out. Um, and, you know, seeing that as an ecological disaster. But this new, these new laws, they actually capture big as well as small, but also cumulative sources of pollution, right? Because when it comes to microplastics, it's death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. Yeah. You could almost imagine in the future somebody taking a test case where there would be, I don't know, Coca-Cola Amatol or something, plastic bottles, kind of akin to what happened well people sort of you know mcdonald's rubbish on the street years ago and then there was a lot of outcry yeah and eventually mcdonald's changed that you know there's still a lot of mcdonald's rubbish on the street yeah but yeah thinking about those things down the track very interesting as to how that is going to play out into the future yeah so we we did a bit of uh sleuthing obviously and and um at the eco center and we we tried to kind of work out the steps suppose that you are a community group of volunteers are trying to protect your waterway and there are basically there are basically four main steps that you can follow um to apply this ged to your particular waterway so first of all it's really it's really important that you know 
the source of your pollution, right? Okay, so you so, need so, to so identify. Any, any community groups out there, get out your pencil and paper <laughs> yeah, or start noting, right. <laughs> noting things down in your notes. So step one is identifying the yeah, source. Yeah, and so that's called the duty holder, right? So that's the person who's responsible for preventing this pollution to get out in the first place. And then you need to identify the potential harm. So what is the adverse effect of this potential pollution on human health or the environment? Well, you know, depending on what the pollution yep. is, there's usually a lot of literature about that already. And then what are the reasonably practical, practicable measures to minimize the harm? And so what we call that is a state of knowledge. What is the state of knowledge of that particular industry? Like, should they know better? Yeah. Right. That's basically the question. Should they know better? And are there already measures in place that are generally accepted as prevention measures in the industry that they should have been applying already but are not? Yeah. Right. So that's the identification phase. Um, then it's time to put the duty holder on notice and write to them and say, look, this is polluting our environment. It's coming from your factory or your organization. Uh, this is the state of knowledge. This is what you should be doing to prevent this. You need to do this. And so at that point, the duty holder is informed. And so you have just raised their state of knowledge by saying you should be doing this and you yep. know this now. If you don't comply with this, we will report this to the EPA. And that's step number three. And then you ask the EPA for to take, you know, compliance or enforcement action. And it becomes more interesting, obviously, once the EPA fails to act within a reasonable time frame, that's when court orders become relevant. When the EPA yeah, doesn't be, act within a reasonable that's time That's right, frame. because they get, they get thousands and right. thousands of reports every year and they don't always have the right, you know, they don't always have enough... Um, uh, manpower, I guess, to to respond to everything. So if they don't if they don't respond within a reasonable time frame, you can make an application to the court. Okay, I, I, going back to step three, where you notify people, so it's, you have to um, demonstrate. I think you said it was reasonable knowledge. You had to there had to be some kind of history. You had yeah, to be aware that what you were doing, a state of knowledge that it was bad. So then, by identifying by the community groups such as the Eco Centre or the Werribee River Association, contacting those polluters, mm -hmm. telling them. Even if you didn't know about it before, this you is know bad. About we're it telling now. you now. And here's, <laughs> yeah. here's the relevant literature. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, Kate, did you have a question? Yeah, mine follows on perfectly from Peter. That whole idea—it's quite, um, I guess, onerous on a community group to have that knowledge of the harm of plastics, the state of knowledge for the industry. Is this something that is being put together for groups to access? It sounds very eco-centre, yeah. um, <laughs> right up there, ballpark. Oh, you got me. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it is. Um, we we did do a community workshop at the start of this year with the help of EJA, outlining all of this. Um, we do have a recording of that as well um, that I think we will be putting on the website soon. Um, and that's that's basically a run through. But at the moment, we're exploring with EGA as well what it would mean to actually take, take a case like this to court. So suppose the EPA... Uh, doesn't respond in time or, or decides that they don't want to do anything about it uh, for, for any reason, um, what happens next and what should that look like? And that's where we are now. We still have this question and the exploration will be starting soon. So, um, yeah, as they say, watch this space. Thanks mm -hmm. for that, Farm. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, it'd be good to get you back later on. I mean, you are 
on the show. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but once, once you do the groups like the Eco Centre and it sounds like you are getting developing these protocols for community groups to be able to address this thing, to be able to challenge yeah. any pollution. Because that's the thing. Like it's going to be an important toolkit that's needed for Exactly. For and what we do with the Eco Centre, you know, like we like to kick things a little bit so they move a little bit faster. Mm. And that's really what we want to do here to, to test what's, what, what is possible really for groups. Okay, it's 9.27. Thank you very much, Farm. You're on Radio Marinara on 3 Triple R. It's Community Cup this afternoon and representing the Sunday sessions, so the Sunday sessions, the top of the sessions we have here, but all the Sunday shows on Triple R, we have Cabin Boy, who is our very own Cabin Boy from Radio Marinara. So, Cabin Boy, you're out there on the line. How are you feeling? You're nervous? Oh, oh very nervous, rubbing some deep heat into the uh, thigh muscles as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You cleaned your footy boots. I bet you were cleaning your footy boots all day yesterday. No, it's still got a little bit of Victoria Park kind of uh, turf on it, so I'm just going to leave it there. But um, I'm at a loss to do. I- I'm waiting. Yeah, I- I'm nervous. I'm ready to go. I've- I think I've spent most of my energy just in nervousness. Did you um, Did you carbohydrate load last night? Bit of pasta, and I had a big bowl of porridge with banana and fruit this morning. Fantastic. Uh, have, you got, have you got a position? Are you, you kind of, you know, challenging yeah. Chris for the ruck or whatever? No, no, no. In the back line, we've got Dono from Breakfast as, as the fullback, traditional. Mm-hmm. He's in form. I'm tag teaming with Vaughan from Double Bounce. So me and him, I think, you know, how Community Cup works is you get a partner and you uh, sub on and off because we can't last the whole game. But uh, me and him are in the back pocket, so uh, that'll be very good. <laughs> Fantastic. I can't wait to see it. Look, it looked like a nice sunny day for it, so it's not going to be a muddy slush. You may have been looking forward to that, though, a bit of rain. Well, the ground's nice and soft with this rain, and if we get a little bit of sun, it is going to be glorious, not for only on the field, but off the field, too. Wonderful. Fantastic. Oh, we'll be dancing in front of the stage, not in the mud. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, well, gates open at 12 o'clock, and I think the first band's about... Oh, no, gates open at 11, first band's at 12, so... um. I'm about to uh, shoot on down and catch the Megahertz Express down to Victoria Park. I'm um, picking up Palm Tree Paddy from PBS at uh, Greensboro, and then we're picking up Paulie P from Livewire at uh, Watsonia. So uh, we're going to be, as I said, we've renamed it the Megahertz Express all the way down to uh, Victoria Park. <laughs> Just a quick word of advice here from someone who played a few years ago, Brett, is don't burn all your tickets. It's a very long game. I ran out in a blaze of glory, marked kicks, had it all going for all of 30 seconds, and then I was spent. So look, <laughs> do not use that energy up. It's a long, long game. I think I was crawling by the end of it and couldn't walk the next day. <laughs> I'll- I'll take that on because we do miss you this year. We thought you'd uh, turn up again. But I think I'm already half-cooked anyway, just with the nervous energy by now. (laughs) So, Brett, are you actually confident? Of what? (laughs) (laughs) Of the megahertz, of course. Oh, I thought you meant with uh, the uh, train uh, right down. Yes, I'm pretty confident they're running on time lately, so no, uh, <laughs> should be good. Um, look, yes, back to back. We've had it for the last three years, not counting COVID, but um, I reckon we can do it because we're looking pretty smooth, I reckon. And the, and the last one was, of course, two years ago. We've had a two, well, three years ago now, if you want to be technical, because yeah. we've had a two-year absence of the game. Um, and the megahertz, if my memory serves me correctly, won by one single point. Is that correct? I think it was. It was a long time ago. It was so long ago that we were worried that someone had misplaced the cup. My God, it was, it, was the pre- it was the previous decade. It was 2019, wasn't it? So we were now 2022, so we've missed 20 and 21. 
the COVID true, five. true, true. Oh. The cup has reappeared, so uh, everyone's relieved, especially Recklink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and indeed it is a fantastic thing for Recklink. So again, those of you who want to head down there, which is everybody who's listening this morning, if you don't have tickets, um, you do have to get online to get the tickets. In the old days when it was down at Elston Week Park, you could chuck 10 bucks in the hat as you went through the door. But now um, it's a little bit more organised. Get your money. No streaking is allowed this year, unfortunately. Used to be able to have streakers. Oh, boo. I know. I'm going to hand back my ticket now. I know. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, just, Sam, just do the streak. We'll raise the money for you to pay for the fine. Okay, fine. That's right. We'll have a a benefit. (laughs) So um, bring your kids, bring your dogs. Dogs are welcome. So the whole family, bring your footy down because you can have a kick at half time on the ground. It's pretty laid back. It's like the old days at the VFA when just everyone used to get on the ground and you can chat to the players and maybe even get a rock dog kind of uh, get them to sign something because there are footy cards you can buy of of all the teams. (laughs) I I don't know what you'll do with them, but hey, (laughs) you you can get them. I'll hang them on my wall. They'll be be rare collector's (laughs) items into the future. I reckon. Cabin boy, we better let you go. We, we all right, I've got to catch a train, the Megahertz Express, all the way to Vic Park. Thanks a lot, Cabin Boy. Um, and we'll be seeing you in the studio next week. I look forward to that very much. So good luck this afternoon, and I'll be shouting. At, we'll all be shouting at you from the sidelines. Go, Megas. Go, Megas. That was our, <laughs> see ya. See ya. That was our very own Cabin Boy, um, who's playing in the Community Cup this afternoon. Um, we're now joined by a Skype. Well, you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. I'm Dr Beach. We've got Fum in the studio and we have Cade Mills, um, who is in Skype land. And Cade, you've got, a, you've got a guest there in Skype land today. I do. I'm not sitting here by myself anymore. No. So our next guest is a senior lecturer at La Trobe University with an array of interests and research areas from the feeding behaviour in penguins to the effects of high-intensity exercise on the contraction of human muscle fibres. But we're not going to be talking about anything to do with that because he also has another passion, which is all things wet and salty, <laughs> So, uh, which is fortunate because it'd be pointless having him on the show otherwise. Um, I'm very excited to have Travis Dutka on the show today to talk about the recently documented Bryozoan reefs of Western Port. Welcome to the show, Trav. Thank you, and uh, hello, listeners. And, uh, yeah, I, I consider myself a zoologist who chases curiosities more so than a uh, pigeonholed physiologist or, um, yeah, so I'm a little bit of a mixture of everything, So, but usually, uh, but mainly a Western Port lover. So I grew up on the shores of Western Port. So, and together with my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Adrian Flynn from Fathom Pacific, a marine ecology consultancy firm, uh, we've undertaken a multifaceted research stream on the Bryozoan Reef systems of Western Port. Yeah, like you recently had a paper published in Frontiers in Marine Science, quite a prestigious journal, so congratulations on that. And it was basically outlining the fact that this thing existed. And the thing that always, I think the science I love the most is when people go, hey, guess what? Here's something that's been sitting under your noses for so long, but no one's realised how important that is. Now, just to wind back a little bit, what is a bryozoan and then what is the significance of this reef? Okay, so... Bryozoan, uh, or bryozoa, are also called lace corals, which is a bit of a misnomer because, in fact, they're not related to corals at all. They sit in a completely different phylum. So uh, they do share similarities in terms of uh, biological functions that they provide 
to other species, but also they're you know a, an individual small invertebrate which forms colonies. And in the um, the marine uh, bryozoan, uh, they can secrete a very similar um, calcium carbonate structure like coral. So. For all intent and purposes, they look like coral, but in fact, it, it's a real bugbear to taxonomists because taxonomists, um, they're not called lace coral. Uh, in fact, a, a little micro bat that you might see flying around in your suburb uh, is more closely related to a blue whale than in fact bryozoa are to coral. Yeah. What? <laughs> they are very yeah. different. I remember I was, I was saying to Cade before, Travis, um, I remember in um, doing, you know, second year invertebrate zoology, and these were one of my favourite fascinating organisms. You described them initially as lace corals. Um, and they do, so they're invertebrates. There's tiny little animals which form colonies as corals do, but they can make these beautiful little lacy structures, can't, can't well, they, many of them do, that you see washed up on the shoreline. Maybe some people... A lot of our listeners will be beachgoers, of course, may have picked up these things and wondered what they were. Yeah. So they're quite ubiquitous and um, there's about, uh, last count, about 5,700 extant species yeah. uh, and probably about 15,000 in the fossil record. So they're quite ubiquitous and they form little colonies uh, all around the place. So people, I'm sure, have, have stumbled or walked on broken bryozoa along a beach without even knowing it. But um, so in respect to Western Port, uh, the area where these extensive reef systems are found uh, has been long documented um, as the corals, going back to the old days where the mud oyster fishery um, occurred between, I think, about 1820 through to about 1920. They would dredge the oysters up to create lime, which was used to build the cities. And in doing so, they would drag their um, tr- um, the, the dredge through and they'd be getting their uh, dredges clogged with these corals. So it became, they called them corals because they looked like corals. Yeah. <laughs> and the name has stuck ever since. And it's not likely to be changed. So walks like more. a duck, looks like a duck, but it's not a duck. <laughs> not always a duck. Yeah. <laughs> and so you mentioned that. You know, basically there was like a fishery for oysters in Western Port and that's going back into like the early 1800s sort of there. And then, you know, even more recently there had been some work done in the bay and this is all in your paper that, you know, some work done in the bay where they went, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of bryozoan stuff there and then they just kept on going about their merry way. What made you sort of look into it a little bit further and go, oh, hang on, this is more than just a little bit of bryozoan. These are like, and as you say in the paper, like use the word biogenic, but for listeners, like a living reef. So it is actually, again, I hate to use the coral reference. It's like a coral reef in that it, it's alive, like it's growing, it's living as opposed to stuff growing on a rock. It's actually exactly. creating the reef itself. Yeah. So well, what made you so double back on it? Yeah, so there are types of um, encrusting bryozoa which um, form a thin layer that grow along a substrate that's already there, such as rocks. But these are truly biogenic, where they're just producing a complex habitat which can be utilised by a whole array of other species. They can provide um, opportunities for uh, feeding and for avoiding predators, uh, uh, attachment for sessile organisms 
baffling from stronger currents and things to um, create opportunities for, for larval stages to, to be um, you know, uh, more sheltered from the otherwise um, larger current. But what, what makes the Western Port Bryozoa unique and globally significant are some of the, the characteristics that we've um, documented. So there's a, a um, the, there's three species of bryozoa which create these big biogenic reef systems. And uh, two of them are closely related in the same genus, Trifolazoon, which is a, a fenestrate um, or pored gentle lace Coral. Fenestrate. Uh, I, lo I love that word. Yeah, I hate that word. <laughs> takes, but, me, takes me back. No, I like it. It takes so me back to my French Fenestra for window. Um, and then there's a, a, a plate like, thicker, um, but still fragile uh, bryozoa called uh, Salopararia, is the genus. And the nowhere else do we know where there's large reef systems comprised of these. Also, Mostly bryozoa uh, form a, a colony about the size of a, a cabbage at, at best, but these are forming large mounds in the order of uh, up to one and a half metres tall. So they're very large for, for bryozoa. And, and typically bryozoa, these larger um, bryozoa that you might find, are always at, at really great depth where then in, in the lower levels of light, they're not getting outcompeted by things like algae. But here in the turbid waters of Western Port, it might be a little bit like a, a Goldilocks scenario where it, there's not that much light that allows algae to, to smother or take over. Um, they've been out of sight, out of mind. There's been no commercial um, degradation of the area, um, like has occurred in other regions of the world where they've lost their bryozoanery systems. So, Travis, and, uh, Travis how, how big are we talking? Because you're talking about the, the colonies themselves being about one and a half metres, but when we're talking about bryozoan reefs, like how big an area are we talking here in Western Port? So we've, we've done some um, high-resolution bathymetry on target areas and calculated that there's about... 1.74 square kilometres of bryozoa and they're formed but um, <clears throat> some of these larger colonies in the north in the northern sector form rows which are orientated in a north-south way uh, which is probably relating back to the historical parent substrate for which they take hold so similar to coral the, the larva needs to attach to a firm piece of substrate somewhere. And that could be a, a pebble or a shell from a, an oyster. And in fact, that could be um, why they occur with these um, mud oysters, because they might have been using the original um, oysters as a, a place to attach. And as time has gone past and the draining of the Kururup swamp, uh, the sediment profile of the bay has changed, and that might have... Um, smothered the original parental substrate and now we only see the bryozoa growing in these rows where they're keeping their head above the sediment. Yeah and one of the exciting things about this work is and we mentioned it being like a bioge like a living reef there's a lot of work going on around Australia at the moment to restore some of these living reefs in terms of oyster shells and things like that. The fact that we have one here that we 
like we don't need to restore it. We don't need to do anything to sort of bring these things back. We haven't destroyed it. It's quite impressive. And I know that you guys have basically gone to the trouble of submitting it for listing under the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, which is an act in Victoria that can be used to, you know, protect species, but communities as well. Where are you up with that? Like, where are we going as far as getting something to, you know, help um, protect this reef? I'm hoping we receive a phone call imminently. Um, it's gone through all of the phases uh, and it's there's been a little bit of backward and, and toing and froing with the scientific advisory committee. They've approved it and sent their recommendation on to the minister and I'm hoping that it, it's been with the minister for a while now. So uh, it just needs to be ratified um, by the minister and that will hopefully happen in the next week. And yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Travis. It's important to get protection of this while we um while we understand what it's like now. And I just want to take it back, Cage. You said, you know, this is pristine now; it hasn't been destroyed. But we actually don't know that, do we? I mean, you, you have, Travis. You've you've documented this for the first time now, so we really don't know what it was like back in the '80s, back in the '50s, back in the turn of the century. Western Port is home to these really important habitats of the seagrass beds, the mangroves that they had to the north of Western Port, which is the subtly distribution of mangroves on the mainland. So. In a sense, I'm kind of challenging you on that. We yeah. don't know how much that we see now is representing what was there in the past. Correct. So, and just touching on the FFG, it doesn't actually afford any um, tangible protection, but what it does do is compel anyone who wants to use that area, they need to consider it. So what we need to do is get the uh, monitoring underway um, to then so we've now got high resolution definition of, of of the area and now we're involving a citizen science project which we're, we've got proof, proof of principle working to come up with ways of um, cheaply monitoring the reef for change so it could be that it's growing and we um, or contracting, so we need to follow up yeah. with mon monitoring. Yeah, and I know when I had a conversation with you about this, and I take umbrage, Dr. Beach, I didn't say it's pristine, <laughs> I said the fact that we have something that's still here that we can work to protect <laughs> was where I was going with that. Right. Um, it's nice to have these discussions on air. But no, Travis, I I'll know see you have a lot of afterwards. work sort of upcoming. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're running out of time. But Better the thing I love about getting people such as yourself on is that we can always get you back on because there is plenty more to talk about and it's absolutely fascinating. We're only just sort of hitting the tip of the iceberg as far as our knowledge on this Bryozoan Reef. So would you, are you welcome, open to coming back and joining us again? Oh, I'd love to. And we can talk about the growth projects we have underway. Oh, yes, and how old the reefs are yes. and the difficulties of that we're, oh geez we've got a lot to go we better yeah. get out of here before we and, our, and, and acknowledge i'd just like to acknowledge too our supporters like such as the western port biosphere and the um uh, port of hastings development authority they've been really useful with their uh, in-kind use of vessels and whatnot so we've had a lot of uh, uh, support along the way to get this research up and running great to hear what's happening in western port Cade Mills and um, Dr. Travis Ducker from La Trobe University. Thank you very much for that. You're with Radio Marinara. This is the last five minutes of the show. We're going to get out of here soon for the doctors. But just before we, um, we do that, I just want to talk fun and Cade about a paper that I found in Science this week on a new population of polar bears, which has been discovered in South 
East. I was about to say Queensland, but Greenland is the word I need. <laughs> I'm still in Queensland. Greenland is a very different place, of course, and particularly in the southeast corner, which is below the Arctic Circle, and it has fjords coming in off the side. We all know what fjords look like, but it's not um, covered by the ice sheet, which the vast majority of Greenland is. And it's on that ice sheet that most polar bears live, the Greenland ice sheet and also the ice sheet around the north of Canada, the rest of the bit inside the Arctic Circle. So usually polar bears, they feed themselves by have it waiting, hanging on the ice sheet. So the thick sea ice, so this is from seawater, which is frozen. They wait for a seal um, who comes up for air and then they nail it and they eat it. Poor seal's gone, but the polar bear gets a feed. Um, so this is normally how the there's currently known 19 populations of polar bears feed um, on sea ice. This has been the first documented population, but people have been aware of it for about 1835, which doesn't utilise sea ice per se, but rather something that they call melange. And that is a mixture of glacier freshwater. So glaciers of freshwater, which is frozen. Um, the ice which comes off that, which breaks off into the fjords. Um, and so that is a little bit slushy, if you like, compared to the sea ice chunks, which the other 19 populations of polar bears use. Um, there's been a group of people um, headed by somebody at the University of Washington in Seattle from the Polar um, Studies Group there who has, who has worked on this along with a whole team of other people and as well as the indigenous um, indigenous hunters in that area. Um, they've documented not only they've tagged I think it's about 30 of these polar bears over the last seven years. Um, they've also been able to get samples from them and do the DNA. This is from the locals who have been um, nailing a couple for food um, and so they get the um, they get the sample of the DNA from that and they can compare the genetics. So they are able to show that this is the most genetically distinct of the now 20 populations of polar bears. The interesting thing about this, of course, is that because we are faced with a warming Arctic, we're faced with um, the thinning of the sea ice, the, um, um, the, um, the, the ice sheets around Greenland and all of that, people are deeply concerned, as we know, for the, um, the future of polar bears. But if we have this population now which is able to, to survive and indeed exist very well and have done for a long time um, on ice which is a different kind of ice than this does hope some well, you know pose some hope for the future that the um the polar bears may be okay at least this population but nevertheless um we can't be complacent because of this but no but it's good to hear some good news about polar bears for once yeah i don't know if it's good news it's good it's good news in the sense that they might be able to save the whole population but it's yeah i don't know We've got to get out of here. On that happy note. On oh, <laughs> that happy note. Yeah. Um, Cade Mills, thank you very much for joining us from Skyland and um, bringing in Dr. Travis Dutka from La Trobe University. Thank you and see you next week. Uh, I'll see you in the studio next week, yeah. And thank you, Fam Chako, for joining us in the studio today. Thanks to Rachel for doing a fantastic job of panelling for us this morning. On next week's show, I'll be taking the helm again. I'll be joined by Cade in the studio. We've got Cabin, Joy, Cabin Boy joining us again. Let's hope he's... Um well, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to say. Let's hope he's not in hospital with a broken leg from today. That's <laughs> really I won't say that at all. No, he's going to win. He's going to win. Go Megahertz. And we're going to be talking to people from the Werribee River Association. Um, they have got a um, an event on July the 2nd, kicking off Plastic Free July. So we all need to remember it's Plastic Free July. So get onto the websites, check that out, see what you can do to reduce your consumption and use of plastics. Um, we'd better get out of here. This has been Radio Marinara. It's been a pleasure to be in your ears for the last year, for the last hour, and we will see you next week.
Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.